You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things. The treasury of blessings and the giver of life come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Annie Mitchell. Father Hezekiah, it's good Sunday Gospel Reflections here for the second Sunday of Advent. Get yourselves ready. So here we are, second Sunday of Advent, Isaiah chapter 40. Yeah, we finally get to your Adventy passage. This is the one that you always reference when you think of Advent. So the one Isaiah. I always reference, or the one. Well, yeah, you, you know, we've been talking for a couple of weeks about yes. like these don't oh, sound very right. Adventy, yes. and you're like, this is Isaiah the one that chapter you keep forty. Yeah. Give it to us. Give us all our biblical 40. texts. So we can write them all down, and then off we go. Let's go. Yep. Here we go. Okay. So the first reading for the second Sunday of Advent this year. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Then we skip down to verses 9 through 11. The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalm 85. The gospel is right smack at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And the epistle this weekend is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. Mm-hmm. So let me know when you go. are ready to hit up Isaiah 40. Here we go. Let's jump in. All right. Here we go. Isaiah Comfort. chapter 40. Okay. okay. There we have All it. Right. I just gave it away. What's that? Comfort. 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 Yes. Go All ahead. About comfort. Padded pews. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> comfort. Give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is at an end. Her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rugged land shall be made a plain, the rough country a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go up onto a high mountain, Zion, herald of glad tidings. Cry out at the top of your voice, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Fear not to cry out and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Here comes with power the Lord God who rules by his strong arm. Here is his reward with him, his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he feeds his flock. In his arms, he gathers the lambs, carrying them in his bosom. 
and leading the use with care. Beautiful. Yeah. This is what I think of when I think of Advent. Yes. So good. Handles but, Messiah, right? But but this is again why it's important that we do not allow Handel's Messiah <laughs> to take over our to take over Advent. because yeah, because there's the danger, isn't it? Is you hear this passage mm -hmm. and you start thinking of of going to the church concert, you think of you know, the I don't know, the duck in the oven <laughs> Christmas yep. Eve. Yep. You know, all these all these warm and fuzzy feelings. And that's what we want to stop at the ICC. Not the okay. I don't want to stop warm and fuzzy feelings. I love warm and fuzzy feelings, especially during this time of year. However, however, when when we come to the Bible, we got to make sure we know what we're talking in the about. Proper context. Yeah, exactly. And so Again, always was our habit, guys. Well, we got to get our bearings because I have heard you say any number of times, I believe, that Isaiah 40 marks a turning point in in this book, correct? So, like, what is going right. on in Isaiah So, here? So, again, going back to the beginning of Isaiah uh, to chapter 1, verse 1, in which those kings, and we, we looked at this, it was last week, right? We were in Isaiah 63, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And two weeks ago, last week, whatever it was. Yeah, last week. Isaiah chapter one. And here we are. And we've got the kings listed there. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now you're going to say, oh, look at that great king Hezekiah. Yes, I understand. There's one good king in the list. But these other guys are a bunch of worthless bums. And it's during their reign that things go from bad to worse. And even during Hezekiah's reign, and even during those that followed him, and even during Josiah's reign, not everything is not not good. Even among the good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah being two of the few, but these other guys, just, it's it goes from bad to worse. And so, so we've talked about. I know we've talked about Babylon exile ad nauseum at Sunday Gospel Reflections because it is that important. It is the crisis which ultimately leads to the incarnation, right? The incarnation. Is a is the resolution of uh, the crisis of the Babylonian captivity, but of course the Babylonian captivity is a symbol of really the captivity of mankind, captivity which took place at the fall of uh, in, in the book of Genesis. So you can say that you learn more about the fall from the Babylonian captivity. You understand mm -hmm. the Babylonian captivity as a kind of natural result, if you will, of the fall. And therefore, Christ Christ comes in the historical context of that Babylonian captivity problem, which is never resolved even from the time they come back. And then ultimately, then he resolves the problem of the, the ultimate captivity of mankind. So there's the big, 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 big picture. But Isaiah chapter 40 now, Isaiah is looking forward, not during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, but looking forward to the return from Babylon. Chapter 40 is like the hinge of of Isaiah's prophecy. So we've got we've got everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But chapter 40 is that hinge in which there's hope for the future. Now, there's two ways just to kind of realize that as we're reading this text, if you go back to chapter 39 with me, you see King Hezekiah who himself averts death. Mm. And so so chapter 40 comes to us in a very kind of the the easy thing to say is it is the hinge, which is the first thing I said by which we begin to see that God is going to restore his people after the Babylonian exile. But if you remove the chapter, the chapter break, which is a late addition to your Bible, and you read Isaiah through, this comfort coming people is, is being spoken of in the context in which Hezekiah 
realizes that God is not going to smite his people, right? Hezekiah's own life has been preserved. He was, was on his deathbed. He's going to live. And the end of Jerusalem is not going to come during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way in which I, I do believe that the chapter 40, verse 1, can certainly be read in light of, of what Hezekiah is, is experiencing. In fact, in fact, St. Ephraim says this, Hezekiah offered prayers to God because he had been told that death was imminent, but he failed to pray that evil should be averted from his descendants. Hence, Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. So the fathers of the church certainly read this in the light of Hezekiah. But now we have this, this second, there's three levels here that we can talk about. The second level is how this passage is interpreted in the life of Israel such that it becomes the passage which is quoted in our biblical text today in the gospel as a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So certainly Hezekiah is seen, and this is not the only place, Hezekiah is seen as the as kind of this foreshadowing of the Messiah as a righteous king who protects his people at least during his lifetime. And so chapter 40 can certainly be read in light of Hezekiah's reign. And other passages regarding Hezekiah are also used regarding the, the virgin birth. And so, and that's what I can say is the second level. As Israel returns from Babylon, she takes passages like Isaiah chapter 40, meditating upon them in such a way that they become prominent in the mind of the people that God is going to bring comfort to his people. Now, of course, I said there's three levels because the third level would be then how the church interprets this. But actually, maybe we can add a, a fourth level to this. And if we go back to levels of peel it back, right? So you have the Babylon exile itself. And, but then you have the restoration from Babylon. And that's where I do believe that Isaiah chapter 40 really f- helps us understand on a historical level what is then going to be interpreted later on a spiritual level regarding John the Baptist and so forth. And that historical level here with comfort, cover, and peel. Listen, listen to the language that's used. A voice cries out in the woods, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and even ground shall become level. The rough place of plain, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Right? Well, why is the glory of the Lord need to be revealed? Well, because the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in Jerusalem at the Babylonian exile. So part of the restoration has got to be the glory of God returning. Yeah. And what, what is it that all the valleys need to be laid and all the mountains? Because the people of God are in exile. They're in Babylon. And they're looking for that restoration. So you, so the first thing to do, if you're trying to go back and get your historical context, is read 2 Kings chapter 25, which we've looked at too many times. 2 Kings chapter 25, and the burning of Jerusalem and the taking of God's people off to Babylon, chapter 25, 2 Kings chapter 25. And then to read, uh, that's just one chapter. So I'm just giving you a little homework here. If you really want to do your Bible study, then I'm going to read 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 to the end of the chapter. This is my, my Bible study for those that want to dive a little deeper, okay? We're not going to read these passages. And then I'm going to read Ezra chapter 1. Hmm. Okay? So there, again, if you have are new to this Bible study, you haven't looked at those passages before, you're going to want to back and do those things. Because ultimately, I think 
I say that is the first historical context in which Isaiah is prophesying this passage here in Isaiah chapter 40. But then, as we said, it's then now applied later on. Why? Because when the people of God return from Babylon, even though we might say the highway was made easy by Cyrus, the the Persian king who gives them money, who gives them everything and sends them on their way. I mean, that's, that's the wilderness prepared. Right? There's the highway, there's the mountains cleared. Is Cyrus just saying, Here, here's the horses, here's the wagons, here's the money, here's your water bottles, right? <laughs> go cross the desert and go home. And they go out rejoicing with tambourines and drums, and out they go from Babylon and they land in the promised land. But when they land in the promised land, they not everything doesn't go well, right? The temple is not rebuilt. There's famine. There's uh, drought. There's all these things which take place because the people of God were not faithful. And so now this crisis moment happens. They've returned to the, to the Holy Land, but God hasn't returned to them. And now this yearning for God to fulfill his promise of comfort. When you can imagine the Jew uh, during the time of, of the return in which they experienced all this famine talking to his son. Isaiah promised that God would send comfort to us, son. That comfort he talked about is when the Messiah comes. And when the Messiah comes, the glory of the Lord is going to return. Now, the glory of the Lord was, was the 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 Shekinah cloud, right? The glory of God present in the temple, filling them, the presence of God physically manifest. This is why, by the way, John says in his gospel that Jesus is the glory of the Father. Yeah? Because because as Jesus comes into this world, he reveals himself as the restoration of what God's people had lost at the time of the Babylonian exile. So I think, Annie, there you go. But you would probably have other questions. Well, um, yeah, I want to ask, at the beginning of this passage, um, it says, you know, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service is not at an end. Her guilt is expiated. Indeed, she has received from the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. What does that mm. mean? Well, I'd say again, we could we could understand this in in those levels, right? You have the the, the what happened at the Babylonian exile. Well, what caused the Babylonian exile? We've talked about this many times, yeah. Um, that the people of God refused to honor the jubilee year. Yeah, the jubilee year. Not only the jubilee year, but they weren't keeping the Passover. They weren't keeping anything. They were they weren't faithful to to God's law. And if you want to go back and learn more about this, a great study by the way you can do during this time of Advent is our Swords and Serpents series here at the Institute, in which we do a fast paced run through the Old Testament so that we understand the background to all this stuff. Um, but you can read in Jeremiah chapter thirty four, and if you want to go back and read that right now, just hit pause. The story of what happened of God's people when the Babylonians were marching on Jerusalem, how they released the slaves that they were not supposed to be holding in the first place, and that they had not honored the Jubilee year. And because of that, then God imposes upon them 
kind of a jubilee of jubilees, 70, not only every seven years, but 70 times seven, ultimately, ultimately, the time from the Babylonian exile to the coming of Christ is the fullness of that exile that they were to experience. But in Ezra, in Ezra, the shortened version of that is their 70 years they sent, they, they remain in Babylon. I mean, not Ezra. I mean, um, I'm not sure I said Ezra. Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, as we looked at it there, chapter 39, it explains the whole business, right? They're going to go into, into exile for 70 years. And so ultimately, we can talk about this. Though they, they Because they refused to grant freedom to those that they held in debt, they themselves end up in slavery. Yeah? Yeah receiving a double portion if you will not only are they in exile oh, for okay. seven years sure. right and so so that's how i would read that that there's the, the look i think we all know what the answer to that question is it was a tough time it was a really bad time <laughs> and they paid for their for their wayward acts if you will yeah well, let yeah. me ask you this, because we like to pull up maps here on SGR and and look at at the geography. Do you think that understanding um, the Holy Land geography um, can give us a better idea of what he's saying here about, you know, valleys being filled in and mountains being laid low and all of that and what that what that actually means to well, prepare the way of the Lord? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think especially the second part of it. And that is that go up to a high mountain, Sion, herald of good tidings. Sion is another name for Jerusalem. It's the highest, mm-hmm. the highest knoll in Jerusalem, right? Herald of good tidings. Cry out at the top of your voice, Jerusalem, herald of good news. That, that's Jerusalem is the high mountain, right? Yeah. And, and then say, shout it out to the cities of Judah. That's over all of these mountains and hills, right? And so I don't even know if I can pull up a graphic that would give this to you, but Jerusalem is, is the mountain of God. It is the, the, the high point, if you will, of everything. You know, um, you always, they always, the Jews always talk about going up to, to, oh, to, up Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, right? We're going to, yeah. we're going up to Jerusalem, even if they're heading South or they're, you know, whatever the case <laughs> may be, they're going up to sure. Jerusalem because it's a high point. And so that certainly that second part of that should be understood in those terms to get up to the high mountain, the one to the place that is the is the meeting place place between between God and man. Very cool. Very cool. Well, shall we look at the responsorial Psalms, Psalm 85? Yes. yes. Lord, let us see your kindness and grant us your salvation. I will hear what the go try that again. Why don't you read that part? <laughs> Lord, let us see your kindness and grant us your salvation. I'm going to stop there for a second because we got to, we have to always biblical context, right? So, so the, the Psalms are being sung by God's people, always in reference to what the Lord has done, right? So we know he's intervened in our life in the past. Remember how he acted in the in the life of, of God's people during the time of, of Egypt, during the exile, the exodus. Remember how he's done so many things in the past for us, how he opened up the Red Sea and so forth like that. Let us see that kind. We got that in our passage last week, Annie, in Isaiah 63. Tear open the heavens, Lord. 
We want to yeah. see you come down. We want to, we want you to intervene, right? And grant us your, I will hear what God proclaims the, the Lord for he proclaims peace to his people. Near indeed is his salvation to those who fear him. Glory dwelling in our land. Kindness and truth shall meet. Justice and peace shall kiss. Truth shall spring out of the earth and justice shall look down from heaven. Because we've been in exile for 70 years, right? And now you might be saying to yourself, yeah, but I haven't been in exile for 70 years. What's this all mean to me, right? Well, you're invited into this experience of God's people now, this distancing from God. And you know what you and I have that, that, that the Jew in Babylon didn't have? And that is a knowledge that God is coming. He's, Christmas is almost here. Yeah. He is going to act in our lives. He's going to be present with us in a, in this beautiful way. Um, and, uh, and, and then we can, we can then apply this to the Lord because now you can read this in, in a full understanding, not only of the Jew in Babylon awaiting the, awaiting the, the restoration that God is going to give him, but that restoration is now not only, not only a meeting place, place between God and man, the high point of Jerusalem, but it is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the womb of the Virgin Mary yeah. in the place where God and man are knit together again, are joined together, never to be broken apart because they are, because they're knit together in the eternal person of the word. Yes, this is why the new covenant, a covenant is always the joining of two as one, right? The marriage covenant, two as one. We talk about Jesus is the new covenant because in him, God and man are joined together again, never to be broken apart. Kindness and truth shall meet. Justice and peace shall kiss. Truth shall spring out of the earth and justice shall look down from heaven. This meeting place between God and man, right? This is all, this is all happening as Israel's looking forward to the restoration of how it's supposed to be. And suddenly we realize that how it's supposed to be is, is not a temple built out of stone, but a temple built by God himself knit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Wow. How, 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 what a beautiful gift we've received as Christians. And, and then it's a matter of being in that that is salvation. Yeah. Um, um, where was that? Near indeed is Near how indeed. It is his salvation yeah. to those who fear him. Glory dwelling in our land. So now, now it's a matter of my participation in this reality. That's what salvation is. Man joined to God because the God side of this is the eternal side, right? Man joined to God. This is why St. Paul says that in baptism, we are baptized into him. We are made one with this so that in our life, that knitting together might be revealed. So yeah. sing this out, Lord, let us sing your, let us sing your, grant us your salvation, grant us this joining together so that, that, that Jesus does not remain born of the Virgin Mary 2000 years ago in Bethlehem, but is born here and now in my heart also, in which God has come to dwell with me, with his people. It's really incredible to read this in light of the Holy Eucharist, I think. Mm you know, like near indeed. Well, it's about as near as you can get, really. Yeah, that reality speaking. takes place for us. This is so beautiful about our faith. Like, yes, we have Christmas, but we have Christmas every time we receive communion. Yep. We experience what the Virgin Mary experienced 
every time we receive communion, if only we have the vision to see, if only we have the understanding to realize what God has done, that the Virgin Mary is the seed, is the beginning of what he wants for all of us. She is the invitation, if you will. Shall we move on to let's take let's take a look at Mark. But I'm gonna say this because I know I'm gonna get attacked. Hey, bothers guys, you can't say that. Virgin Mary is unique, special. Hello, yes, 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 yes. But the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of the Virgin Mary is not in that she keeps it to herself, but that she becomes godlike in sharing the gift that yep. she has received. Yes. Amen. So the uniqueness of the Virgin Mary is a gift to all of us in that we are in, united, we are invited into that uniqueness. That's very beautiful. Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. Here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Annie, this... I couldn't even turn there fast enough. Lord have mercy. Do you want to know where Mark is in the Bible, Father? I'm back here somewhere in Ecclesiastes, Ezra, Ruth. Where is it? Mark. Okay, I mean, New Testament Catholics. New Testament Catholics. Mark chapter one, verses one through eight. Yep. Let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. Okay, here we go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey. And this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. So here we are at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. I think it's so nice that uh, as we are in the uh, second week of Advent here that we start the gospel. Of Mark. I love, I, by the way, I love the gospel of Mark. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about it last week about Mark being a disciple of St. Peter and so forth. But here we are. Yes. Go ahead, Annie. Yeah. So he jumps right in, not with the nativity of the Lord, but with John the Baptist. So that indicates to me that John the Baptist must be fairly important guy <laughs> to to get such a uh, showcase here in in the Gospel of Mark. So what do we what do we need to know about John the Baptist and why actually, while we're on him as a topic, why is he so associated with Advent? Well, he's in the in the Christian East. He's given another title, and that is the forerunner. Mm -hmm. He is the forerunner. I love that. That's I love that cool image. Yeah. yeah, because it's John that that points out the Lord. Right. Remember in the in the um, well in this passage in this passage, but also but also in the Gospel of John. Let's just let's flip from Mark to John real quick because. You'll, you kind of get a little bit more of a taste of this 
in the Gospel of John in the same passage, but John gives us a little bit more detail here um, in chapter 1, verse, verse 30 and following. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. Myself did not know him, but for this I came baptized with water, that he might be revealed as Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven, and it remained on him, and I myself did not know him. Yes, and then I'm going to come down to verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with the two of his disciples, and, and he looked and said and at Jesus as he watched, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Right. Mm-hmm. So there you've got you you've got John like literally with his finger out. And what is he doing? He's got disciples and he's saying, go, right? And that's the way he's the one, right? And so there's, that's my favorite image of John. And I love, I love uh, going into the church in the Orthodox tradition and the Byzantine tradition, always on the iconostasis, that's the icon stands where the gates go into the holy place, the doors, is John the Baptist, always depicted there pointing the way to Christ. Cool. So I always, when I come to the church, I always love to go to John the baptism, uh, Baptist and re- repent, you know, kind of begin that repentance, which we always should be doing all the time, all the time, and then going to the icon of Christ. Because the some, there's something very beautiful about this that I think is important for us to remember, and that is how God acts in our life. Um, as I've said many times, God loves us too much to save us without us. And that is he allows us to participate in who and what he is. He, we are made in his image after his likeness. So my role in your life, and this is where for our Protestant brothers and sisters with us today, this is where apostolic Christianity, both East and West depart from, or I should say, this is where Protestantism departs from apostolic Christianity. And that is that, that God makes use of us, as St. Paul says, is his hands, his feet, his eyes, and his ears, his that that we are meant to be self, self like conduits of salvation for those around us. Yeah. Now, again, for my Protestant brothers and sisters that are with us, you're saying, oh, I don't reject that. And I would say, great, welcome back to the Catholic Church. Because this is what we believe, that this created order is supposed to communicate divine life. Um, through water, we are born again uh, into the life of the Spirit. Through eating of the Eucharistic bread, we are given not only bodily nourishment, but but nourishment for our soul. We receive the life of God himself. We, we receive the body and blood of Christ, as he tells us. Um, through the anointing of Holy Chrism, uh, we're confirmed in the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, the physical things, the material things of the world are meant to communicate God's, God's life, much as the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was to be eaten and Adam and Eve were to live forever by eating. This was God's original plan. This is what Romans chapter 1 tells us, that creation is meant to be revelatory. And we, being the crown jewel, if you will, of God's creation, are meant to be revelatory in a big kind, big-timey way. Well, this is why the apostles are sent out. Jesus could have miraculously gone around and healed everybody. He didn't because he loves us too much to save us without us. So he sends his apostles to do his work for him. He could have revealed himself in all of his glory at the resurrection or in any moment, but he didn't. 
because he wanted his body to be re to, to reveal, right? As St. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Glory is us shining, right? That's what the say, what is the glory of Annie? Okay. Well, it's it's Annie-ness. It's Annie kind of being Annie, right? Well, God's glory is God being God. Well, what is God being God? It's it's God loving. Loving is the giving of our life to the beloved. And John tells us God is love. And therefore, the saints are God shining forth. They are revelatory of what God has done. And they're, re they're revealing who he is, that he is love. Yeah. So John, the forerunner, acts in this special role to point the way. Yeah. Just like the Virgin Mary says yes. Right. At the moment of the Annunciation, what a what a what a beautiful thing that and 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 please don't give me Mary. Did you know <laughs> that stupid song? If I was the Pope, I would I would ban it. In the old days, the Pope sort of banned stuff like that. Mary, did you know? No, but of course she did. The angel. Told of course, of, yes, yes. Thank you, Annie. <laughs> but but this isn't to say that. In, there's a, a beautiful mystery here in God allowing himself to be vulnerable. I, I, I almost, I know someone's going to attack me for this. God can't be vulnerable. Okay. But get, take my point that God allows us to be this conduit of life by which if we refuse, we shut off the conduit, you know? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't just overpower us and say, forget about you. Never mind. I'm going to do it a different way. No, I mean, we can cut off the conduit, right? If we can not be who we are. Well, John was who he was supposed to be. He pointed the way. So he was this essential character. And not only that, he was expected to be so. Yeah, the, he was, in some sense, just as much as that, those words comfort, comfort my people were in the kind of in the ear of the Jew of Jesus' day, looking for the Messiah, living in mm -hmm. expectation. So John fit the model as they're looking. God's going to bring about this comfort. And when he does, what here's what it's going to look like. And it's going to look like exactly what they saw in John. Wow. So they it's going to look like a guy clothed in camel hair, and eating bugs and honey. Why do we like why is it so important that we know what his wardrobe is and his diet was? Yeah. To understand this, this is a little sub Bible study that we have to do here. The little fun okay. little one that we're okay, gonna go and fun. do. Okay. And so here's what it is that we need to come back to uh second kings. So let's flip back to second kings. You can leave your hand in your Bible if you want. Uh, Second Kings, I'm going to go back to chapter one. Second Kings, chapter one. And this, and it, it, you got to go back and kind of read the context here. But basically, Ahaz sends out these guys and they, these messengers, and they come back to him having encountered the prophet. Okay. And so they come back to the king who hates who hates Elijah because Elijah is doing much. Uh, well, you all know John the Baptist. So you know what John the Baptist did uh, and uh, with Herod and what happened yeah, and so forth. Mad, okay. Yeah. So 
The messengers, verse 5, this is 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. The messenger returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say, thus the Lord is, sorry, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Wow. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, what kind of man was he that came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a car- garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather around his loins. He said, ah, it's Elijah the Tishbite, right? It's, it's, Eli- <laughs> it's the prophet Elijah. So, so Elijah was, and I'm going to kind of make, I could give all sorts of spiritual, uh, you know, we talk about the man of repentance and the man of, okay. But, but let's, I think suffice it for our Bible study today to say that Elijah liked he he liked his wardrobe and he was known by his wardrobe because not every man walked around like this right mm-hmm. so so they describe what he looks like it's like you know when i was a kid i i liked this 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 clothes that were um called uh i called them my greenies and i never took them off my mom had to peel them off me just to wash them They're, i had a jean jacket and jean pants they were my greenies you know they were green jeans mm-hmm. So, um, but this is Elijah, right? Elijah's got this outfit. He's got this, you know, everybody knows that's what the guy wears. So, so now we have this description in the gospel of John getting dressed up like, like Elijah, right? Well, why is that? Well, Hmm. Elijah was this great prophet that called the, the people of God to repentance. Yes. Yeah. And so it became, and not only that, not only that, there's another factor that's really important. And that is that Elijah was assumed into heaven. Yeah. The fiery chariot took him up. You can read about that there in in second Kings. And so the Jews believed that because he was taken up into heaven alive, that at the coming of the Messiah, Elijah would return and call the people to repentance so that they were worthy to receive the king. And this became a a uh, tradition among the Jews, and it ends up finding its way into your Bible uh, in the prophet Malachi. So, if you turn to Malachi, which in my Bible is just before Maccabees, almost at the end of your Old Testament, Malachi prophesies before the coming of the Lord. Notice, notice what Malachi says. Chapter Malachi, chapter three, verse one. We're going to skip around, but let's look at this language. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. That sounds kind of, sounds John the Baptist a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And and the Lord to whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger, the covenant in whom he, you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit and re- the refiner and purifier of silver. Again, sounds very, very much like the gospel text about, about Jesus's return. Yeah. But notice there's a messenger coming and look at chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day comes burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So again, this is very reminiscent for us as Christians going the other direction of of the gospel text about Jesus' baptism. And then verse five is the key one. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now I'm going to stop for a second. Time out. I'm having people flip out across the ICC vast audience because some of you are using New American Bibles. In the New American Bible, your chapter and verses of Malachi are different. Right. And it's just the way they notated the verses. And so if you're trying to follow us, chapter four, verse one in your RSV in Malachi is chapter three, verse 19 in your New American. Okay. So I, so there, that it gets a little bit confusing there, but now I'm coming down to verse chapter four, verse five in my version. And there you have it. It's a last paragraph. So if you have your new American, it's the last paragraph of your text. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of his, of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Hello, Luke chapter four, chapter one. Turn with me. Luke chapter one, verse 14. And this is about John. For you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. That's the birth of John the Baptist. For he will be great before the Lord and he shall drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers and their children, the disobedient, the wisdom, the just, and ready the Lord, a people prepared. That's wow. John the Baptist, right? That's what John the Baptist is doing. And this is what is told of him regarding his birth, quoting Malachi. Wow. So if so, so now do you think as John was growing up, do you think Zechariah sat him on his knee, shared with him some of the things that he was called to be great in? You're gonna be son, you're gonna be like the prophet Elijah. Now, seems to me that John got the message. And he got out of his drawer those old greenies that he did he loved to wear, and he put on. Elijah's outfit. Now, now again, we can give all sorts of spiritual interpretation of John's ascetic life, but I do believe there's something here for us because John went down to the Jordan River, dressed up exactly like the one whom they were waiting for. The expectation of the one they thought would come. Now you're saying to me, wait a minute, because in the Gospel of John, In the Gospel of John, we have a little bit of a challenge here. And that is in chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they, now this is great. This is, I love this moment because how many times have you, has someone walked up to you? Are, who who are you? Annie, I know this happens to you all the time because they hear your voice, right? Yeah. In a party, yeah. they hear your voice, but they I recognize you from you from somewhere. Yeah, the Institute yeah. of Catholic Culture, right? And oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, Seriously. Uh, no, from the Sunrise Morning <laughs> Show. So so um so they say, Are you the he says, I'm not the Christ? Because they know he knows that what he's doing is messianic, right? They're yeah. like, 
when the Christ comes, he's going to purify the people. Just like Elijah was to come and purify the people, right? So then they said, maybe this guy's Elijah. Remember Malachi? So this is what happens. He confesses, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Right? Are you the guy that Malachi said was going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord? And he said, I am no. Then why are you dressed up like him? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So look, um, uh, um, I just need to, to hold there for a second because we need to just flip over to Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, just to clarify this issue for a second. 11, 14. Okay. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. Eleven thirteen. We'll start at eleven thirteen. Matthew eleven thirteen. You there, Annie? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm here. Okay. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus says this is the Elijah to come. Why does he then say in John that he is that he's not Elijah? And the the best answer I've I've heard of, of, to answer this is that um, as you read John, you find out who the guys are that are sent down to ask him these questions. They're sent from the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are in an argument in the Gospel of John with the Sadducees over the issue of the resurrection. And they're trying to use John as a pawn, as they always do, right? They would try to use Jesus that way, pitting one against the other, right? So if he says he's Elijah then he'll throw himself on the side of the Pharisees against the Sadducees. John will not be used as a puppet. And therefore he says no to them because he is Elijah who is to come, but he's not Elijah of old. It's a different person. Yes. This, by the way, is also the reason why Elijah shows up the transfiguration and Moses. Right. But that's for another Bible study. But, uh, but, but here, here Elijah comes and he's dressed. John the Baptist comes. He's dressed like Elijah. Yeah. And, uh, and very beautiful. Now he is, he is preparing God's people because he's Elijah is the one who crossed the Jordan river and was taken into heaven in the fiery chariot. Right. And the fathers of the church say, when he crossed the Jordan, he was, he was cleansed through baptism and prepared for the spirit of God to come in and take him, take him away. Right. Just as now John the Baptist is down the Jordan river, calling people to repentance. Repentance doesn't save anybody, but repentance is the necessary foundation by which salvation can come. Yeah. Mm. It's not enough to repent. We must also have the pouring in of the spirit. So, well, that was the, I I was going to ask about this, the difference between the baptism of that, that John is giving and the sacrament of baptism that Mm. we have today um, and, and I think you've, you've kind of answered that question. You can, I mean, if you have more to say on that, uh, please do. But I guess my, my last question is in, in light of that difference, like, why are we focused on the baptism of John in this yeah. second week of Advent? It's a good, it's a good, a good question, Annie. It's an excellent question because of a problem we have in the church today. And that is that most, most Catholics today don't realize that Advent is a time of repentance. Yeah. We've lost Advent as a penitential season. And uh, we've been overcome in so many ways by secular consumerism. And even if, even if we've, we, we still say, no, 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 we're, we're, I'm serious about Advent. I've got my Advent wreath and I've got my Christmas tree and I've got, and all these things. Yeah. But it's, it's oftentimes is, is, is 
sad. I, I mean, maybe I'm being negative, but the kind of trappings of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And and I and I just have to. I'll just say this is a time of fasting, my brothers and sisters. If you're if if you're not keeping fast during the Advent season, I would invite you to consider it, because historically this was a, a time of, of fasting. It's not a time to be inviting friends over for big, you know, luxurious parties of steak and uh, all these things like that. I, I'm not saying you guys you can't invite friends over. In fact, I just last Sunday I had some friends over my house and we cooked some fish, but you know it was Sunday. We allowed ourselves a little bit extra, a little bit of something, right? And then kind of come back. But yeah, this is a time of of of, of spiritual pe- preparation, and fasting is a big part of that. But the church doesn't say we have to fast. Yeah, but the church doesn't say you have to go to heaven either. Yeah, but if you want to go, then you got to get yourself prepared. You and there's prepare and the way. Yeah. what's that? You got to prepare the way. You got to prepare the way. Yeah. So this time of repentance, a time to go to holy confession, it's a time to reflect upon our lives, uh, to repent of our sins and to ask God to bring about a new birth. Yeah, a, a new birth in our life, just as the as as Christ be born of the Virgin Mary. So a new birth in the way of the Lord. And then with that expectation that's built up over time, then to, to be ready for, for Christmas and not see, you know, and, and I'll say this probably multiple times over the next couple of weeks, and as if you don't go to midnight mass or you don't go to the high liturgy for Christmas, come on, really? Come on. Father, it's too late for me. Well, it wasn't too late for uh, for Mary Magdalene to get up while it was still dark. So but the church is too full. We need a church is too full. You should be in the front row. You don't even know. I don't know how many people are at church on Sunday. I'm standing at the altar. How I know, right? But uh, because I don't. I'm not, I don't do the whole facing. The I people. like the mass that does the genealogy and the God. That's what I love it. It's beautiful. Absolutely. So these are things of building up this expectation by preparation where there is no preparation. There will be no fulfillment. Yeah. And so prepare your hearts this at this time for the coming of the Lord. And then on that great feast day, make it everything that you're going to do so that the Lord can truly be born in our hearts. So that's why I think, you know, looking back at the John the Baptist of time of preparation, time of repentance. And well, let's take a look at the um, the epistle, because as you've been saying so often these past few weeks, the Lord is coming and you keep thinking, like, how long is it going to take? And Peter kind of gives us a, a little hint at at the timing of the Lord here. Yeah. And as we're reading this, just remember, we keep talking about the second coming and the and and the incarnation side by side this is what we do liturgically this is one one reality yeah go ahead Amy. and we're at second All peter right. second chapter. peter chapter three and okay. we are starting on verse eight. Second peter chapter three verse eight okay here we go all right here we go do not ignore this one fact beloved that with the lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some regard delay, but he is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a mighty roar and the elements will be dissolved by fire and the earth and everything done on it will be found out. 
since everything is to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be conducting yourselves in holiness and devotion, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved in flames and the elements melted by fire? But according to his promise, we await new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you await these things, be eager to be found without spot or blemish before him at peace. There we have it. I, you know, we'll just maybe conclude with a little comment here regarding this last, this last line, first of all, about repentance, about confession, but also at peace. And I think at this time of, of the year, family matters seem to kind of simmer up for us, right? difficulties and challenges that we have faced with our siblings we have faced with our parents um, with neighbors or friends or co-workers and uh, just as the lord is coming to seek a peace with us this this communion of of persons so we ought to live out the image and likeness for which we've been made um, and through a time of fasting and prayer and discernment to find reconciliation with those that, with whom we've been divided. It doesn't mean, by the way, that, that as I've said before, forgiveness is not forgetfulness. And sometimes it is that others in our lives have done wrongs to us, right? And it's happened in my own life. I myself have wronged others, yes? So forgiveness does not mean forgetfulness, but it does mean desiring the restoration of the other person in the image and likeness of God. Um, and and sometimes in in our fallen world, a physical healing or a, a uh, I say a, f- a physical restoration is impossible. Maybe there's there's been abuse or maybe some other form of difficulty that is that can't be resolved by coming together. But I certainly can fast for the other. I certainly can desire their good. Um, and if you struggle with that, I simply ask you this. If the, if the person from whom you've been divided has done some uh, terrible evil, um, and I'll just throw the bad one out there, just so they murdered your, you know, someone you love. Do you desire that they continue to murder people or they continue to murder those you love? No, no, I don't. Good. So there's the beginning of, of, of peace, the beginning of restoration. What do you desire for the other person? Well, that they repent of their sins and that they never do this terrible thing again, whatever that terrible thing is. And then to ask yourself if you're willing to help them get there. And we believe that there's a spiritual communion of persons who have been baptized into Christ. Fasting is, can truly impact the other person. Prayer for the other person is salvific. And so I'd encourage you during this time of preparation in which God is seeking to come to restore communion with us in the incarnation, uh, are you willing to be like the Lord and to restore a communion with those uh, that have been divided from you, that you may be an image of the incarnation, an image of that that communion of God and man, right, like this, Uh, because you're a Christian. And that is your ministry, to be the hands and feet and eyes and ears and mouth of Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. 
The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.